Hey guys, before today's episode of the podcast, I want you to text me 212-931-5731. If you don't, you're missing out. I'm putting all my eggs in the fucking text basket. 212-931-5731. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Thank you for attending yet another exclusive lead experience that we have curated for you today. I am especially excited to introduce our next speaker. Um, he, uh, he'll be taking the main stage in about an hour down the hall, so I hope you all join us for what will be a passionate and curse-filled uh, presentation. No, 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 sure. no. My note no? said no cursing, so. <laughs> right, so you gotta get it. That means you gotta get it out all out here. Yes. Uh, for those of you that may have been on social media today or at any point in the last two years, you probably know who, who Gary Vee is. Uh, Gary Vee is the CEO and co-founder of VaynerMedia, a 900-person strong media agency in four countries, four locations around the world. Uh, they partner with Fortune 500 companies, advising them on brand and digital strategies. He's the author of a book right now called Crushing It, How Entrepreneurs Build Businesses and Influence, and you can too. Uh, on top of the other five books he has, on the New York Times bestseller list. He has a podcast called the Gary uh, Vaynerchuk Audio Experience, which I'm a subscriber of. I love, yes, thank love you. the message he's putting out in the world. If you don't subscribe, click the button, subscribe, listen to him, the guy's the man. Uh, he's got a vlog, the Gary V. He, uh, let's see, he's an investor, early investor in companies that you may have heard of, Twitter, Tumblr, Uber, Venmo, did I get him? Probably many others, few others, <laughs> um, few others. He was he was recognized by Cranes and Fortune, top 40 under 40. He graced the cover of Entrepreneur magazine. I'm sure we've all seen as we're coming in and out of air- airports. Uh, he even has. I'm not wearing these, them. But his own line of sneakers, Gary V's edition one and two, both sold out the first day. So I'm a cool. I'm a. My enti- I'll maybe get into it later, but my entire thesis is that nostalgia is grossly underpriced, and I'm building my agency, actually not to build an agency, but to build the reverse of private equity, which would create hyper-growth instead of cost savings, and I'm just waiting for the economy to collapse, and, and, and uh, what he's referring to is I did a collaboration with K-Swiss, which, you know, looking around the room, some of you might remember K-Swiss's Prime, others do not. Uh, but, I remember the song. Uh, yes, but rebooting that brand, which, was losing quite a bit of money before we did the deal and just sold for $400 million uh, in a very quick period of time, allowed me to kind of test my thesis, uh, which went well. And so uh, that's what that is for context. There, there's more too. You could read the, read the, read the Google link. There, there's even more that he's in. Modern day renaissance man. Uh, why I'm especially excited to have him here today is because of what I think he's got in common with most of the people in this room. Um, search, staffing, and RPO. For hustlers, for sure. We got that challenger mindset, that entrepreneurial spirit. We got compassion and empathy for the life-changing decisions that we help people make on a day-to-day basis. And I don't think anyone embodies that entrepreneurial spirit more than Gary V. Gary uh, came over to this country when he was seven years old from Belarus. Three. Three. Three years old. Started working in his father's liquor store at seven. You can keep me honest here. Mm-hmm. 
uh, started working in his father's liquor store at seven years old. 14, 14. It's all right, it's right. You're killing, by the way, everything else was amazing, like you're crushing. Thank you. The bus is over there got in the it, red Got mark. it, <laughs> Killing it. So, Memorize this stuff, I'm impressed. He knows it better than I do. So, um, now, so now, now I lost my flow, I forget, where was I? Dad's, dad's liquor dad's store. Dad's liquor store, thank you. So dad's liquor store, stocking shelves, uh, side hustling, trading baseball cards, as every kid does at that time. What kids don't do is recognize the pattern between trading baseball cards and, and what goes into the mindset there and trading wine. So challenged himself to become one of the world's leading experts in wine at the age of 14, 15. He's got some great anecdotes about that. Um, did that, it was around 94, 95, Windows 95 just came on the scene, internet was starting to get big. YouTube was about five months old. Gary Vee created a website, the country's first website that was a liquor distribution site. In, in uh, 1996 I launched winelibrary.com which, you know, when it launched, it was the, one of the first three e-commerce wine retailers in America. Uh, on top of that, saw YouTube, thought, this looks pretty cool, this has potential. Um, I feel like I'm quoting the guy sitting next to me, which is a little <laughs> weird, but go with me. Uh, and started posting a video series on different wines. Uh, it caught on. He grew his father's liquor store from $3 million in annual revenue Thank you, brother. to $66 million in annual revenue in under five years. And the key there, in hindsight, and obviously those are, that's a, you know, those are really nice numbers, but now we live in a world of trillions and gazillions. I think the thing I'm most proud of, and this will resonate for the owners in the room, it was a business that was doing $3 million on 10% gross profit. So, and with no credit line, none of this VC money infusion, to build a business at that small of a level from three to $60 million plus in five years without a credit line, one more time for everyone in the back, it, it, takes, it takes making every penny of what you do be perfect. And I think, you know, and I really appreciate this, and you're also really good at presenting it. I might take you on the road. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, at some point here, I'm, I really want to do a ton of q and I think th- there's always an opportunity to build a business uh, much smarter than a competitive set. It just takes uh, the ability to understand how to be 100% consumer-centric. Not 99, not 98, or not what I see every day, which is five or 7%. It is 100% consumer-centric. The reason I am one of the best-paid speakers in the world is because when I go on stage today, I am 100% focused on figuring out how to bring the most value to the audience. The people I've been running into, I'm like, that have come here, one guy said, I've been here 10 years to go into this thing. I'm like, who's in the audience? What's the makeup? Who's an independent, who's internal? Like, uh, who's like, what, how do I reverse engineer the context of the people that are listening? And how do I bring the most value? And then karma and practicality and realities of anything that I would want selfishly will play themselves out if you bring the most value first. It's actually gonna be the macro thesis of how I think about kindness and empathy actually being the most financially smart thing to do in building a business, but there's no CFO-driven business in the world that believes that to be true, which are all the businesses <coughs> currently. But not forever, because technology will continue to advance and better data will emerge, and I think we will start to understand how much more valuable emotional intelligence is than having a skill. 
You know what I, you know what I haven't heard you speak about when, when we talk about the, the wine though that always, I always question is like, what did your dad say? You know, by, because I worked in the store since I was 14, by the time I was 22 and kind of like was given the keys to the store and, and, and really the only reason I had autonomy to run my dad's liquor store was because at that point, even through high school and college, I was able to build up the business enough that my dad decided to renovate, their, my parents decided to renovate their home. And my dad is actually a builder in heart more than he is a retailer. And so this two month project became a one year project mainly because he just loved it and milked it. In that year, I took the business from a $3.3 million business to a $9.7 million business. And again, not knowing anybody's size or anything, these are very easy numbers to understand. As an immigrant family, when your business goes from 3.3 to 9.7, it's like very confusing. It's, everything's changed. And, uh, and I used that leverage of like, see dad, leave me alone. And so what he thought was, it's really fun to birth a golden goose. <laughs> I mean, that's really, in high, that's what he thought. You know, like, not super complicated. Like, his, his uh, manhood and pride and competitive spirit, all of which I take, probably struggled a little bit in the friction because it's his store. And I'm an immigrant, you know, I, I left that business at 34 years old with no money. I didn't own it. I, you know, it's my dad's business. I built, I built this huge business and then, you know, when I tell all the things I say on LinkedIn, have patience, this and that, I lived it. You know, I lived it. And so, um, what it, he was proud. He was, he was also irritated. Uh, I, I actually, get, I don't, I usually go improv, but I'm so excited about the keynote I'm about to give that I actually imagined my opening speaking about my dad, who was born in communist Russia, which for everybody here who did not grow up in a communist regime means that everybody is against the machine. The entire ecosystem there was the black market. All that happened was that employees stole from companies since it was all state run. The entire company ran on black market dynamics. And so my dad's first thing that he taught me at 14 years old, as now a guy who's about to give a keynote that says kindness and empathy to your employees and your partners is the most important thing, he literally looked me directly in the face and said, our employees are our enemies. Literally the first thing I was taught was to watch them the day I started. Make sure they don't steal. So he was frustrated. The only fight that stayed, because as I kept building the business, I would knock down my dad's leverage. The only one that we fought to the end was I wanted to sell our products that we sold in the liquor store to our employees at cost, and he didn't want to. It's incredible. So it's, you know, and honestly, in that note, my dad and mom are complete opposites. It's why I walk around with good friction of being a contradiction, which is I can appease the head of HR and the CFO very easily. It's my natural state. It's why you have wildly different friends that like me and don't like me because I can play from left and right. Um, it, I really benefited from my dad being the polar opposite because I was young and impressionable so I could see the world through his eyes even though my natural state was far more similar to my mom's eyes. And in that, I think created the enigma that leads to so much of my success because I think that tension is needed. And I think in the macro, not to go political because it's not fun, but you'll never win when you pull from opposite. You know, when people dig in, it's always, always a little bit of both. The number one mistake that I've made running businesses in the last 20 years has been creating entitlement because I deploy too much empathy but that sometimes causes enormous vulnerability.
radical candor matters and that's something that took me 20 years to develop, 20. Because I don't like negativity. And thus, people were flabbergasted when they would get fired and I'd be mad at them. I'm like, how the fuck do you not know that you suck? (laughs) And then I had to be self-aware and realize it would have been nice if I told them that once in the 847 times I thought it in the last 18 months. I'd love to, uh, I'd love to uh, fast forward a bit um, to, you know, when you started Pivot and create, create your, your, this media empire. Yes, 2009. So in, in, in this room, yes. you know, as we said, it represents some of the largest staffing recruiting agencies, RPO agencies in the world. Yes. Um, and the industry as a whole is evolving. Recruitment marketing, aka content, is is growing is one of the fastest growing aspects of this industry. Makes sense. And I think a lot of the questions that I hear are about just where to start. Because these these are businesses that haven't traditionally needed to think about a marketing strategy, a content strategy, a brand strategy. Well it's, this is super funny and obviously like I think a lot of some some people here know me or consume me. Like I've been screaming for the last year about LinkedIn. Like it, I'm telling people that sell fitness equipment and raisins and socks to do content marketing on LinkedIn. You can imagine, you can imagine what I think you should be doing on it. <laughs> I mean, if you are not producing four to 12 pieces of content a day at the scale of your businesses here and probably even closer to 25 on LinkedIn a day organically, you're making a fundamental mistake. And there's nobody here even remotely close to doing that. I believe that to be true. <laughs> I really believe it, you know? I'm glad and I hope you do because you know, I think what you may know based on jumping in or some of you may know following my career the last 10 years, I end up being right about this stuff a lot. Here's why, I'm not guessing. This is happening right now. Like the organic reach in LinkedIn content right now is far more reminiscent to 2011 and 12 Facebook than anything I've seen. I would think that you're probably aware that there was a golden era of Facebook organic marketing that you heard about from your friends or you lived or know of its existence. It is happening right now in your face in LinkedIn, which is the biggest permission for B2B people on earth ever in the last 20 years to get a good deal. And uh, yet, A, people aren't acting on it because B, they are not consumer centric you will not produce content that brings value to the companies you're trying to serve or the people. You will make content that is a lead gen to your business. And that's why it won't succeed. And that's why the content won't resonate as much. So it's not only recognizing the strategy, but it's understanding how to make the creative that actually brings value to the other person and being disciplined enough to being able to do that. Um, There's no secret of how to get into better shape. Eat better, work out but many people can't keep the regimen for a million different reasons. My strategies are basic. It's not super complicated. This is execution. (laughs) Open it up for questions. What makes somebody suck? uh, In that model, Mm. selfish behavior. You, You put out a piece of content where it's half pregnant and what you're hoping happens is because it's half pregnant, you'll get them to come in. I legitimately, the amount of people that come up to me every day and tell me that they built their agency that is a competitor to mine, 
by 100% doing exactly what I put out for free every day is flabbergasting. But people have not realized that the world is abundant and people in here think they're competing with each other. How do you distinguish between personal brand and corporate brand, like your, your company brand? Um, I, I think that there's a million ways to do it. Obviously, I'm an extrovert and, appreci- and want the attention subconsciously or consciously, understand its value, blah, blah, blah. And so thus, I like doing it, but Nike's doing fine and you know, you know, there's plenty of companies doing super great that you know, don't need a human to be the face of it. I do think people connect with people, but I think there's a lot of people who shouldn't be making content. And what I mean by that is they haven't been self-aware enough yet to figure out who they are as a communicator. They hear a tagline that if you don't do video, you're dead. So they could try to do video, but they're very uncomfortable. They're insecure of the way they look. They naturally freeze on video. However, they could be remarkable writers. You know, one of the things I've done extremely well on LinkedIn is comic strips. I don't know if anybody's seen this, but a lot of them have gone viral, like, they work. And, and the reason I do that is I wanna to continue to inspire people to realize there's a million ways to communicate. You can record something on your phone with it being face down in video form and post the audio. Many of us now watch videos where we're not even watching, we're just listening. Literally, you can do that. Literally, you can hit memo on your phone and spiel your idea. But you have to act as a magazine, as a radio station, as a network. You have to bring value, not as a salesperson for your org. You know, putting out content that gives people insights to the current nuance in the industry that is leading to a higher percentage of getting a job is something that a lot of people think is their secret sauce and they'll just do it one-on-one and it makes them more efficient. I believe that that's the first thing I would put out to the world because the macro, top of the funnel, you know, admiration, appreciation nets out to be a far more successful financial model than holding on to that insight for three months longer than the rest of your industry. Sam, you had a question? Yeah, um, so, number one, it's great to meet you. Thank you, Sam. Uh, number two is, uh, one, of, uh, one of your videos that really stood out to me in the past was, I think you, you, you made a video about always going for the long term. Yep. Always invest for the long term. Yep. Um, and I guess one, one question I'd, I'd like, love to hear a simple answer from you. Because I'm happy to give it. Keep it yeah, simple. I'm pretty simple. When you're, when you're aggressively scaling, ramping a business, outside of making every dollar count, as you mentioned earlier, in your simple terms, what do you feel are the main fundamental pillars that you really have to keep focused on? Try to make everybody stay there as long as possible and try to make as little money each year as possible. How do you mean by the second point? Break even on your P&L. Stop buying fancy shit. <laughs> have Feed your business instead of your business feeding you. People have the reverse relationship with their businesses. A lot of people build a business so they take money out to buy shit. I think it's a better idea to do the reverse. Because you end up with both. You just have to be a little patient. Which got me into all the fluffy shit that I hate I talk about, which is like insecurity and parenting. and like Because I kept giving away all the advice at scale, watching consumed at scale and then watching no action, which led me to like, why aren't they doing this? Oh, and then you like you get older, you get more thoughtful, you live, you're like, oh, people buy Mercedes 
to make pretend they're doing well? You know, like, like you know, you get into all these other places, but that's my answer, bro. You know, like, feed your business. One more executive this year, instead of you taking the net profit at the end of the year as a distribution to buy some shit, is a good idea for your 2020 business. You know what I mean? That's, you know, because what people don't understand is when times get tough, economy tweaks, this and that, a healthier business starting point is great. People take money out of the business, they don't reinforce it into more staff or more anything, and they went and bought something, which is depreciating in value, versus reinvesting in their business that, yeah, then might go from eight to seven million or six, but you're gonna be better off than your competitive set who's doing that first behavior. That's why all my businesses grow during the worst times. What did um, Warren Buffett say? If you like the steak at eight, you love it at six? That's right. You know, I, honestly, you know, I, nev- I don't know a lot about a lot of stuff. I spend all my time on consumers, but I'm aware enough about Warren Buffett that I'm like, oh, okay, I see. I, I naturally have some sort of version of that understanding, which is, unless you're looking to sell the business immediately, you know, if I have just a one-year head start on knowing I'm gonna sell my business, which selling a business will take that long anyway, I can cut out costs to maximize my multiple against the EBA that the bigger thing is gonna buy it for, you know, and everybody like is hedging for that from the get, which is, if you're building your business to sell from day one, you're in trouble. Okay, I think we had another question. Yeah, so a lot of the conference are talent professionals that work in recruiting, um, and one of the things we see, especially if we're, we're not working for big bank companies like Google's and Facebook's and all this stuff, a lot of candidates, though, you talk a lot about uh, individuals not giving a shit about what other people care about themselves, right? But just own who you are. But candidates have this idea that they have to be, they have to work for them. They have, like they have to have that association with a company brand. Yeah. To, to, to develop their careers. Yep. For the companies that don't have that advantage, how do we amplify your message, your your, your talking point? By not wasting time trying to convince somebody. It's a really subtle answer, but I believe it to be the answer. If somebody is so insecure that they have to wear a Steph Curry jersey in Detroit, you don't convince them otherwise. Got it? You just find somebody wearing a Pistons jersey. You know, if you believe that the Facebook cosign or the Uber cosign or the LinkedIn cosign is your worth, you're not gonna convince them, it's their North Star. I just think there's a lot of other people. I, I genuinely believe, outside of a CEO, she or he, that every other job is wildly commoditized. And that, oh by the way, so much of it has to do with it takes two to tango, that you might love this candidate, but until they two, those two people dance at the highest levels, they're gonna have their own relationship graph that is far more predicated on EQ nu- nuances Right, so. Love your message. Thank you. So how can we take your idea one step further instead of being a consumer, for instance, a collaborator, to be a contributor? Because in the staffing industry, retention is really a problem, right? For your employees underneath you? Well, or we, we are a global staffing company. We yep. have contracting and permanent job. On both sides, we saw on the client side 
retention is a problem. Oh, of course. It's a problem for us as well. Like uh, what you mentioned, a lot of times people jumping ships for the vanity of the brand name of the fan companies or for better pay. I think we're, I think, yeah. yeah. I think, I, I, I do have some ideas. I think that, <laughs> I think that we have to stop blaming the employees. I think that we have to start looking at ourselves. The reason retention's at an all-time low is because math is at an all-time high. <laughs> like, I just, I, 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 every time somebody resigns from Vayner, I 100% think it's my fault. I don't know what else to say. We, we were unable to, at that moment, understand that the ROI was either salary, title increase, uh, the people they're interacting with, either on the client side or on their team side, or it's some fun, lighthearted thing, like they just wanted to move back to Idaho and run their parents' ranch. But you know, uh, I think retention is a complete byproduct of big company intent. And not only big company intent, my dad had a very small store and he was trying to maximize his profit. I believe that my retention at Vayner is uncomfortably high because I'm trying to build it in perpetuity, not maximize for every 90 day terms. When you're an Excel number, why should you care? We have to flip the paradigm. Retention's bad because intent at the company level is worse. not super complicated, just really isn't. We make very tough decisions at Vayner when our business is not as well or doesn't look as good. We buckle down to retain, not do the easy thing that the CFO wants, which is to cut. Which leads to a very interesting behavior after a decade. Go figure, this is wild, people feel safe. You know what happens when people feel safe? They don't spend all their time thinking about leaving. You know what happens when people are scared? they leave. I spend 100% of my time trying to suck out fear. What's an indicator of it? Like a whisper in your office? What does that look like to you? Conversations on Slack, Mm -hmm. following every one of my 900 employees on social to see what they're doing. Uh, Actual resignations. I mean, there was a period there a couple years ago, I think 1918, I would say in 2017 to 2018, I'm not sure anybody resigned that we didn't want to resign. I mean, fuck, that's a dream. You know, now our company's so hot that we're starting to lose a little bit because, again, real tough for me to get going when somebody's $180,000 in college debt and they get offered 139 when they're making 62, it's tough for me to cast judgment. You know, that's the byproduct of becoming hot. And that's okay, that makes me happy, not sad. That makes me feel like they believed in me, they siphoned off the cosine of the macro brand, I'm happy. Um, so, I think companies do not care about their employees whatsoever, at all, are 100% predicated on the PL, and thus, the ramifications happen when there's options. Ah, my friends, this has not even started. The viability of being independent with the growth of the internet, will continue to grow at such scale. This is not gonna be about company jumping, this is gonna be about not working in companies. Garrett, on that point, for those of you that haven't heard, he's got some uh, strong views on the traditional college path, I'd say also. Mm. 
something that we spoke about over the last few days has been the changing landscape, the, the changing workforce due to generational lenses that are coming up. So how do you think about finding that talent? And speaking to a room full of recruiters, how should we think about finding talent in a world where college may not be the new norm? By putting in work, you know? By going where people are, by auditing their work. It's gonna be way easier to assess talent than it was before. If you were going, as we were in our society, going through binary what your degree said from which place, it eliminated all the nuances that actually mattered. now, because everyone's putting their life on the record all along the way, you have unlimited data and insight to how, I'm gonna be able to evolve, watch how people evolved from 13 to 24 before they walked in the store by, or the company by looking at all the data they put out into the world the entire time, by listening. You know, by listening. I think it's great. I'm, I'm, I, if, I mean, I don't know a single school that people went to in my company. I have no fucking clue. It means nothing. I, I actually would argue that the most progressive leaders that I know in the world right now probably diss somebody if they went to a, to a good school. I would actually think that, I actually think there's an incorrect overcorrection in the other direction. I actually went three years without investing in anybody who went to an Ivy League school because I thought they were a student, not an entrepreneur. And I would have been 80 out of 81 right. This is the greatest era of fake entrepreneurship ever. Whole lot of number nines trying to be number ones because it's cool. We lack massive self-awareness and I think we need to make that a cultural north star which would then help all of us. Imagine people telling you the truth. Do you know in the history of my life I've never called a single reference? I haven't, why? It's the biggest waste of my 15 minutes. They gave me the three people that are gonna say something nice. It's fucking crazy. We lack common sense. That is my biggest observation over my 20 year professional career and and then more importantly, I hate doing focus groups of one. I like looking at other things to filter through my, what else has worked, what else hasn't? Not my opinion, you know? Yes, ma'am. So when you do interview someone Fully intuitive. So what is your, is there any um, questions that you think you get the most out of? No, I go completely, and, I, it's, and that's why I don't talk a lot. Of, I never put out content on how I hire. I talk about how I fire, but I don't talk about how I hire because there'd be no value given to the world by me telling you that I go by my intuition. You know, I, I, for some reason, I do ask a lot about siblings. But I've never, but I don't correlate, but it is something I talk a lot about, like tell me about your siblings if you have any. That tends to be something, but like I love hiring only children. I don't think they're less capable of interacting with people. I mean, nothing's binary. And we act as if it is. A fucking SAT score? You know, a question that however they answer this based on my complete subjective nature. If there's a fire in our building, what do you do? Oh good, they grab the other people, that's the person, you're hired, it's stupid. It makes no sense. I think for me, I try to go by feel, I ask questions. Uh, I often ask a very specific question to the craft. One of the great things of being the CEO of my company is I know how to do every job in my company. So I'll ask a specific question of the craft. That often leads to a very big exposure of will they bullshit me, will they give the right answer, will they give the wrong answer. 
Uh, I enjoy that question. Uh, But ultimately I'm looking for compassion, empathy, self-awareness, humility, kindness. I I would hire C-minus skilled talent that I think my machine can make them into a B-minus and an A-plus personality every day of my life and have. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it's much more fun than hiring dick faces that produce. Let me let me let me spread it out a little bit. Uh, um, I, I imagine that for your current companies, you get quite a few people applying for your roles. How do you shortlist them? Your interview technique makes sense, but how do you, you know, if you've got four hundred people applying for it? How do you figure out? I want to make sure I heard the first part. You're saying how do I vet somebody who's vying for somebody else's role within the organization that became open? No, say I'm sorry. I have an opening in my company. Uh, that's a great question. So I don't do that at my level, you know, but, well actually, obviously, if it's a direct report to me, um, I go with two different things. One, at this point, my chief heart officer, who runs our HR, Claude Silver, who, here's a fun fact, and I'll be talking a lot about this, who has absolute bigger say than my CFO, which is absolutely why our company runs the way it does. Uh, she'll vet for me after the fact that I've had seven years. I scale through context with people. DRock, now I don't have to watch my videos for post-production anymore because we've been together every day for five years. He knows. Uh, so Claude will get it down to eight, 10, 12, and then I'll do five or 15 or 20 minute things to get to hour and two hour things, and that's how I do it. I have almost no emotion or passion or maybe even belief in the upfront. Here's my macro business thesis on this. That people waste way more time and money thinking they're gonna get it right than going faster up front and compassionate on the exit if they're wrong. That net-net, that system will work better than what everybody's doing here at this conference. For the business. From a humanity and PL standpoint. I genuinely believe that. So as you can imagine, I manifested you the current thing, but I have no idea. Like. Uh, huge fan. Thank um, you. I come from the recruitment industry. I work at LinkedIn now, and I've worked with over 200 different staffing and recruiting firms, like one-man shops up to places that have hundreds of employees. Yep. Um, and so marketing is something that always seems to be like the last frontier with a lot of market, with a lot of recruitment firms. Like yeah, they're not do, they're, it's not happening. Or yeah, oftentimes it's not happening. So I'd say like 10 to 20% of my clients are either marketing or are open to marketing or learning about it and the rest present, um, you know, what they'll say about marketing is like, I don't want unqualified candidates, you know, reaching out to us and bogging us down. Or I don't want clients, potential clients, um, in different verticals that maybe we don't work in, reaching out to us and creating more work. Like, what are your thoughts on that? And like, where they say, you know, word of mouth. Like, we, we're a word of mouth business. Like, we don't, we don't want that kind of publicity. I think it's a mix of audacity and lack of ambition. I think it makes absolutely no sense. I don't know how else to say it. I think people, real estate agents, recruitment firms, a lot of people think that they're okay because of their reputation because they're naive. Things change quick. 
I think humans are going to be part of the variable until robots kill us. So I don't get super going on machine learning or AI or all this. Like I think that the human variable is remarkably important. I think the rise of live events is completely predicated on people spending time within digital and so I don't think about it much. Uh, but I, I do think about somebody deciding to make 15 pieces of content a day on LinkedIn and bringing value to candidates and firms and you wake up in 26 months and even though you've been the big shop in Chicago for 23 years and you know everybody and you fucking golf and you're the guy and you're the gal, you start getting murdered by this new upstart that actually is realizing it's 2020. Yes, sir. My name is Greg. Greg. Um, my question to you is um, the rate of growth that we've seen in the gig economy to this point. Mm. What's your perspective on the gig economy overtaking traditional employment at, at corporations and companies? Yeah, I think the math will continue to play. I mean, why would anybody go work at Procter and Gamble and Kraft and pay Kellogg University that vig when they can just make a direct-to-consumer peanut butter company on the back of Shopify? and Instagram. At what point will it speed up? I mean, it's been going, but at what point does it accelerate? I don't know, but it's an inevitable future. And to your point, if you're thinking backwards of like, okay, I want to do this for 16 more years, how much do I have to hedge against this? The reality is I don't know. I know it's not going to slow down, right? You see where I'm going? Like that's where, you know, I, I don't guess. I don't predict. It's not what I do. I look at actual behavior and I map against it at all times and then I'm willing to put out of business what I did yesterday. Like I can't wait for social media not to be the current pest arbitrage in marketing so that I can make fun of it and everyone's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? I'm like, what do you mean what I mean? I, I only like attention and wherever that consumer's attention is, that's my religion. I don't give a shit about Facebook. I care less about LinkedIn. I care less about anything. I care about the consumer's attention. That's what I reverse engineer in real time. Day trading, not mutual funds. You know? This is not forever. This is right now. But this is right now. And like, that's why I'm passionate about the B2B space and definitely this room to get very serious about LinkedIn content marketing. It will be disproportionately good for your business. And I believe that it's very easy to hire somebody for $20 an hour to filter out the bad fucking leads. (laughs) That's what I think. I mean, Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> right? I mean, seriously, what are we talking about here? You know? Probably have one more. Probably have one more question. How do you get uh, your CFO to be more people-focused and less numbers-focused? By forcing them to. How do you force them to? By mandating it. Do you have control? Are you this, like, if it's your, is it your company? Uh, it's not my company. I'm the president of the company. The CFO reports to you? It's really, but I get it, you know? And I have empathy because there's a lot of things I'm letting my CFO do right this second that I'm not 100% aligned with because I don't want it to completely steamroll him into like, what am I even doing here? Um, That's the nuanced answer to your question. You gotta pick some fights. You gotta say like, I mean I have it going on right now. I have it going on every day because my CFO probably is hyper overreacting the other direction because it's so rogue he subconsciously thinks we're gonna go out of business and I have to remind him that for the last 22 years, as a little boy to now, like I've made payroll every month with no credit lines and no investment, you know? Um, You can't 
you can't run a business as a CFO driven organization and build something long term and meaningful. Yet that's the only thing that's happening out there. Most of you are running it that way. And uh, that's okay. But you better stop blaming employees for anything. If your God is your P&L, please do not have the audacity to judge employees. Right? Like can we deploy some compassion and truth to these conversations? If you're willing to fire somebody on a whim because two contracts got canceled and you have to make payroll, then they should be able to quick quit on a moment's notice because they got a better gig for 15,000 more and they want to build a fence. Judgment, judgment's super intriguing. I think everything's all my fault. Accountability is the gateway to happiness. It makes running these businesses a lot more fun. You want to get way happier? Become 100% accountable. Somebody's not performing, change their job. Change their KPIs. You want a CFO to act way more this way? Change her or his bonus, not around profit, but around its retention. Wait till we can actually, and I mean actually, analyze the value of retention for real, for real, for real. Wait till you see how quickly in 35 years when there's a lot more data, people actually follow this route, not what we're currently doing. Once they realize, wait a minute, if I don't fire Karen because I'm a little worried, she'll stay. This will mean this, this will mean, I mean it's, it's fascinating to watch people make decisions based strictly on short-term finances that undermine the long-term finances. These are the conversations we need to think about and conversate around. Let's get one or two more, can we? Or when do I go on stage? Two more. Love it. Who's got something? Anybody new? Yes, sir. Oh, I do it a lot. It's funny you say that. I'm, I'm actually trying to become less of a gambler. I've let, you know, I took a guy who was a mid-tier uh, PMD Facebook, uh, Jeff Nicholson, he was like a mid-tier guy at, at 30 years old, made him the head of all of media. I mean, pff, I, only make, I, I only make those th- decisions. I, I, I'm trying now to be like, Gary, it's a good idea to hire somebody who's actually done this job before. <laughs> I'm being very frank. I, I'm, I think I genuinely am coming, like, you know, my, my job is to make sure I don't go too far because I am, I'm, you know, it's funny to, to hear that because I take people that are chief market officer and make them head of client service. I, I do weird shit on intuition and some of it goes really bad. <laughs> what I've found is that when it goes well, you're doing something so disruptive that the net, I'm trying to win out here 157 to 143. Got it? And I think most people run companies trying to win 76 to 74. So that's my, so because that's my framework, my answer to your question is kind of the reverse. Claude, who, if any of you know who she is, is well on her way to becoming the most known executive in your industry because She's doing it in our world and getting a ton of exposure. She was an account person. That was a risk. She has more power than the CFO. She's the front-facing person to the hyperbole coming out of my mouth. 
and she ran accounts. But I thought she'd be better at this. I'm only in the risk business. It's more fun. As an empathetic and kind leader, how do you switch to not be, when you, when you need not to be as kind? You have to be hard and, and you're known for being empathetic. I wish we didn't ask as many questions because now I have to make fun of my own self. <laughs> this is the great question for me. So my journey over the last 20 years has been the reverse. I created enormous amounts of entitlement within my organizations by protecting everybody from everything. That's why I'm so hyper aggressive against parenting these days because I realize how much more dangerous entitlement is than I realized. You know, I still will take it over a shit culture, but it is equally as devastating. Uh, by making tough decisions, by, by creating a little bit of radical candor. You know, one thing I'm amazingly proud of is the utter shock and fuck you, you're full of shit from employees that have been fired at Vayner in the last year is way less than it was in the prior four or five years because we've developed a cadence to actually giving feedback and, 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 and I've tried to, and it's still hard for me, temper when I go to the bathroom and I know he sucks instead of saying, you're doing a great job, Rick. You know, now I'll just like wash my hands and be like, you see the big game? You know, like that's, that's it. You know, like that's like, that, 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 is me, you know, I, I can, you know, and you'll see it on stage and you'll probably have seen it in my videos if you've seen it, like I'm a real tough guy when it's just me and the camera and I'm, I'm passionate but like I'm uncomfortably soft. I'm, you know, when people hear about this part of me or like people that work for me but they watch me on LinkedIn or they, they, don't, they don't believe it but they don't understand that context matters. I'm trying to entertain 5,000 people so that I can trick you into hearing me today, right? That takes a different gear than me sitting with you and talking about your family. So uh, what does it take? It takes uh, being transparent to a degree, you know? You know, I'm not gonna share my entire books with the company. I love when people take things too extreme, you know? But you gotta share, you'd be like, look, we're walking into a, a buzzsaw. We're gonna have to make some decisions here. It's, um, for me what worked is I realized I can be Mother Teresa after I fire them. That's really, actually, how about this, guys? This is cool. We're in the process and we'll roll out next year of this whole new philosophy of firing where we give people a 90-day heads up it's coming, rework all of their material to help them get a job and try to place them from within our own company to somewhere else. So that's like an evolution, the 3.0 of what I would do as a guy. Instead of me, you know, sorry Rick, it sucks. Like, by the way, here's my friend, here's my friend. I just texted this guy. Like, literally was doing your jobs for my employees. But this is why I take no references. <laughs> <laughs> right? So. All right. How about one more? Julian? Fast one. <laughs> I have a quick one. So, when you're talking about like reinvesting into your company, do you ever have like an idea or a recommendation that you give to companies in terms of like how much percent of revenue they should be reinvesting no. into marketing? No. No. My answer is as much as humanly possible. I believe that the internet will commoditize everything except brand. As much as humanly possible. Like communication's the only thing left. The product itself, like obviously if your candy bar sucks, I'll just speed up everyone knowing it sucks. The product, and your brand, 
because everything in the middle is in trouble. Bookstores went first, limos and cars went next, the entire macro infrastructure of physical retail is happening right now. Wait till you see what happens to the fast food and fast casual space with all these cloud kitchens and everyone's ordering everything and getting food delivered in one minute on brands that don't have stores but it's the new McDonald's. It hasn't even started. You guys have felt the effects. There's been technology things of that nature and there'll be more. I would never, I, I, it's very rare for us to consider to hire an outside recruiting firm because I'm just gonna analyze people in the wild. The data's there. Wait till that becomes consolidated. Wait till people understand that is a very good way to do it. You better build a brand because it is reputation. It's why people say all those things, right? They're right until they're not. And, and how you build your reputation and the scale in which you can and what's happening and the ability, what's gonna happen and has already happened to some of you and you know this to be true is, you see, this is a, this is a ridiculously big spider. <laughs> what's, go, what's gonna happen is somebody who's only been in the business for three years is gonna start winning business from you and you're gonna be complaining that they have no experience of what the hell but they've already struck the heart and the mind of the person that decided because they've watched four videos on LinkedIn and they made sense to them and they're very thrilled that you've been doing this for 26 years but Karen made sense to them a week ago. Don't let that happen. Like I said earlier today in a different conference which has been a fun day, two talks, which is rare for me, Goliath should never lose to David. If you have a big company, which I assume at some level you do here, or influence or what have you, you should not be losing to upstarts. None of those wine stores should have lost to me. They just didn't believe in email and Google. They thought catalogs were better. Thanks guys for listening. Please, please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed because a bunch of you aren't subscribed and more importantly, a bunch of you listen every day and haven't told your friends it's the best podcast in the world. I'm watching. (laughs) Have a great day.